We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia, WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on everyday major sports, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. We're going to get to the Robert Sarver story that was released this week later on in this podcast. That's clearly the most important thing going on. But we also have something cool happening for us in particular in this podcast in that Sam is here in Phoenix and we're recording for the very, very first time in person and together. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You can't see it, but we're locking eyes right now. So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty weird. What a week to choose to come. Yeah. It was, you know, there are two sides to it. Obviously, the, the Suns played some great basketball this week, so we're gonna talk about all that too. But then coinciding with everything else that happened, it was weird. Yeah. It was weird. Well, people were asking and asking us in particular, when is this Robert Star Sarver story going to come out? It turns out that all it took was for you to come to Phoenix for the very first time. <laughs> Yeah. And with the intention of having fun watching Phoenix Suns basketball. And then, of course, that's what triggered the story to finally come out. And now we're recording for the very first time in person. And we, we have to talk about something that we don't even really want to talk about later on in this episode. That that kind of sucks. Yeah. And we'll get to it. And, you know, there were some scheduling difficulties this week, which is why we weren't able to react to it initially. Right. And so yeah. everyone who listens to this podcast at this point, I think, knows the basics of what happened, yep. like the nuts and bolts of the story. So now it's, yep. we got to talk about all that stuff. I, I, I think kind of as a recap, but also like where it goes from here. And so yeah. we'll, we'll do our best to cover it all in the second half of the episode for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get to that, but we do want to talk about basketball first for, for multiple reasons. One, 
We went to all three games in this last week, the two of us, and the Phoenix Suns are undefeated when you and I are in attendance so far, meaning... 3-0. If people wanted to pay for us to go to every single game, we can extrapolate and, and understand that they would be undefeated for the rest of the season... If right. we were to both attend. And and to me, it sounds like a pretty good investment on yeah. the part of the taxpayers of Phoenix. If they wanted to yeah, do that. I mean, but, yeah. You, yeah. Know. you want some goodwill, Robert Sarver? Send us to the games. Uh, but yeah, it was fun to see the games in person. Did you have a good time going to the arena? What did you think? I obviously had a great time going to the arena. Um, I So yeah, I've never been in Phoenix before. I've never been to a Suns game before. I've seen them a million times play at MSG Barclays in New York, but... The arena, the renovation was really impressive. I'll just say that off the bat. Like I had heard Suns fans bitching about the state of the arena and how everything looked really kind of crusty and old and the food yeah. was bad and whatever. We can talk about a million things. But like I was used to that reputation from five years ago. I was really impressed. I was I was really impressed. It was a really fun time. Yeah. Um, everything was smooth, efficient. The mm-hmm. food was good. Um, bars were cool. It was it was just great. Meeting people was cool, obviously, too. Yeah. So all yeah. around great time. We got to meet Kellen. We got yep. to meet Bob Adlock. Yeah, we, we, we met, of the met a bunch broadcast. of people, met a couple other people from Suns Twitter, too. It was so. fun. Yeah. Uh, the Suns have now won four games in a row. We went to the last three. The four games were the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, New Orleans Pelicans, Houston Rockets, Atlanta Hawks. These were all home games. Um, the first one was the Sacramento Kings, which was a loss as well. So five games in a row at home. They won the final four. They're two games over five hundred right now. Uh, I just wanted to like give us a chance to I think to talk about these games. I think they're all three interesting games. DeAndre Ayton left the Cleveland Cavaliers game with a knee contusion. Did not play the Pelicans game. Did not play the Hawks game. Played for a while in the Rockets game. Ended up fouling out in that game. It was pretty good. Uh, what'd you think? Let's start with the Pelicans game. What'd you think of the Pelicans game? Pelicans game was cool. I mean, kind of they were all different, but the consistent theme this week was that you had teams that were beatable. Mm-hmm. And you had stretches uh, of, of struggling against all of these teams. I mean, I, I don't have the box score for the Pelicans game in front of me, I'll be honest. But they were down for mm-hmm. a solid 20 or 30% of that game in a way that they shouldn't have been. The same was true for the Rockets game as well. So um, I think all throughout the week, this team was able to battle back and show some resiliency. And, you know, they played great fourth quarters. I think a ton of that has to do with Chris Paul, if we wanted to talk about him uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, kind of letting playing with your food a little bit. Yeah, that was that was a story against the Pelicans, right? I think Devin Booker struggled mightily yes, early yeah. in that game, but I think the story for all three of these games, in a sense, is the backup centers <laughs> because Javale McGee played significant minutes. Uh, Frank Kaminsky played twenty eight minutes in the game against the Pelicans. Right, that was that game. Okay. Right, he had seventeen points. Yep. Javale McGee had eighteen points in that game. And, uh, you know, something we were talking about just sort of in the last, after these games ended. And early on, I think in the offseason, we talked about the potential of DeAndre Ayton missing time. Now we're sort of seeing DeAndre Ayton miss time. It seems like he's not going to play against the Sacramento Kings. For those of you who are listening to this, I think it's Monday is that game. Uh, It was one of the things that you said that you were the most afraid of happening for this team. And look... Cleveland Cavaliers obviously ate and played some of that game. Uh, New Orleans Pelicans. The Hawks are pretty good, and the Suns pulled out that win. They are pretty good. Uh, are you still? It, have those guys given you more confidence in the in the potential of DeAndre and missing time? Well, I have to say they've played terrifically well. 
um, both of them, uh, you know, and, and but I think still, yes, I still am afraid of DeAndre Aiden missing significant time because yeah. of the the quality of these opponents that you're facing. And also we look at the sun so far, they haven't been really impressive defensively. And mm. any of these games, I, I checked it out earlier. I think they're still bottom half of the league in defensive rating, even with their mm-hmm. above two games um, above 500. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the obvious tangible qualities that Aiton brings on the defensive end, I think the game he did come back against the Rockets, he looked strangely slow mm-hmm. on defense. I guess not so strangely because I think that was just the knee contusion mm-hmm. bothering him. But there's a certain level of competence that he brings to that end every night when he's out there um, That that's like one of the most impressive things and the way that he has grown in the past few years that you just, we're not going to see out of Frank Kaminsky. We're mm-hmm. not going to see out of even JaVale McGee, um, even for all of his energetic blocks. But what I will say for those guys, you look at the other end, the offensive end of the ball, and they're playing some some fucking great basketball. Yeah, they really like, are. No, they really are. Frank Kaminsky has been really good. I, I don't think, I mean, there's no, except for Chris Paul maybe, there's no player on the team who has better chemistry with Mikhail Bridges. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. That's so true, yeah. Hey, he just catches the ball in the mid post, and he's looking for him instantly. Mikhail mm-hmm. knows right away to cut. And how many times have we seen them do that over the past couple seasons? Yeah. And I think the willingness to cut for for Mikel goes up when Frank Kaminsky's on the floor because one, he's more likely to get the ball if he does cut, and also Frank being able to attack off the dribble from like 15, 20 feet away means that the help defense is coming off of the corners a little bit more when Frank is on the floor than uh, if DeAndre Ayton, you know doesn't really look for the cut that often and isn't really attacking off the dribble from that position. Uh, that just gives him more room to cut uh, in in that scenario. So I think, yeah, I agree. That chemistry is uh, all-time high. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, Frank Kaminsky, we weren't sure how many minutes he was going to get. I think I said at the beginning of the season, if Frank Kaminsky's on the roster, we're going to be cursed to play him significant minutes at some (laughs) point in the season. I said it last year as well. It just happens. When Frank Kaminsky's on the roster, he's going to get playtime at some point. Uh, and, And now he is. And I think that he is really making up for the loss of Dario Saric because what Dario did last season, now Frank is doing in a lot of ways. The difference is, of course, Frank is a legit center. Like, he's really tall and really long. Dario Saric was undersized for that position. So, Frank, you know, I'm not saying that Frank is a good defender, but, like, against the Pelicans, he had a really good extended stretch guarding Jonas Valanciunas who is a guy who's killed the Suns in the past, Mm -hmm. and somehow Frank Kaminsky was the answer against him. So I've been really, really... I mean, I guess I didn't expect to lead the very first podcast you and I had uh, in person talking for an extended time about (laughs) Frank Kaminsky. No, but I I really think it's been one of the stories of the week. I I think it's kind of been Frank Kaminsky. um, And then, like, if I had to point out any other guys, well, I don't know. It's kind of been one of those weeks. JaVale? Yeah, JaVale's been good. JaVale's been good. I mean, he's just been, he's brought energy. Um, but it's nothing that I haven't ex- expected. Yeah. I think what you were afraid of is him fouling out. And look, he hasn't. Honest, he hasn't fouled out, but he also yeah. hasn't played a ton of minutes. I right. think Monty has shown more confidence in sort of splitting their minutes between uh, Frank and JaVale. It's, it's not something that, you know, we've had to have JaVale in there the entire time because Frank was getting killed. Yeah, I will say JaVale got pulled like three minutes into the game yesterday because his eyeball got scratched. Yeah. And that's when I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like th- that could potentially be very bad. Um, if, you know, because then you're talking about the possibility of relying on Jalen Smith. Um, and that's when we know things can fall apart entirely. 
Yeah, Jalen Smith though still averaging more points per thirty six than DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't look too heavily <laughs> into that, but that is a stat that is. It true. means nothing. It means nothing, but I do think that the way that Frank Kaminsky and JaVale McGee are capable of scoring in the offense that the Suns run because teams are trapping or or at least showing on Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Chris Paul's very good at slipping the pass between the defenders to the guy in the short roll position. And Frank is very good at either catching and passing or catching and attacking. JaVale, if he has a little guy on him, he's going to attack. And that sort of confidence that both of those guys have in scoring one-on-one against a smaller defender facing up towards the rim is something that DeAndre Ayton needs to learn. The exact type of defense that was employed with the Pelicans and the Hawks against the Suns is what Portland was doing against the Suns earlier when Portland killed the Suns. And and DeAndre Ayton was much, much more likely to pass out of that position without dribbling once than he was to attack off the dribble in that scenario. So that's definitely something I think he, he can learn from those two guys. I Yeah, I, we were discussing, honestly, before we recorded, um, just the possibility of like making a more detailed analysis about that because I think it's something that people need to see. Uh, another really good point that I've heard you make in the past is like, DeAndre Ayton's a really willing passer, which I do think is a good thing. But there's a difference between being a willing passer and, and sometimes hitting the pocket in the right spots. Like when you pass to corner shooters, there's such a, a, a small window of opportunity there. If you're hitting Mikhail Bridges, but he has to collect the ball by his feet right. or up above his head, then he's not going to get a clean shot off. So there's there's a bunch of things that I think DeAndre coming back could learn, oddly enough, from Frank Kaminsky and JaVale McGee. Yeah. That doesn't mean he's not a better player than them because he is a better player than right. them. But offensively, I do really think they're they're kind of showing how to run the cleanest offense. Yeah. Yeah. The, I remember Tom Leander used to describe Steve Nash's passes as on time and on target. And I think the on target part of passes is something that is a little underrated because like if Mikel Bridges, for example, is catching the ball at the three-point line, off of a DeAndre Ayton short roll because the defender for Mikael Bridges is helping off of the corner and Ayton passes it. If if Mikael has to jump up and catch the ball above his head or reach down and catch the ball at his feet, that shot automatically becomes a lower percentage shot because right. getting into the, um, the shooting form takes a little longer, allows the defender to come out to help and, and actually contest the shot or just the awkwardness of going from a weird position into a shooting motion uh, is going to make it more difficult as well. How about Chris Paul? Yeah. We have to talk about Chris Paul this week. Not necessarily in the sense that he was the absolute best player, but I think he took a lot of us by surprise just with the way he's playing in general, the yeah. tendencies. He's yeah. he's always been the guy who turns it on in the fourth quarter. We know that. But this year especially, he's taken a huge step back yeah. until the third or fourth quarter, and, and it's it's been wild. Uh, what mm-hmm. have you thought? Well, 12.9 points per game. 12.1 assists per game, I believe, is what he's currently averaging. When we talked about how Monty Williams was going to juggle the young guys improving while still trying to win, involving Chris Paul in the offense a lot like this, kind of makes a lot of sense because now he's looking for, say, DeAndre Ayton more. He's looking for Mikael Bridges more. He's looking for Devin Booker more. He's not as much looking for his shot. Something that I just tweeted about his shooting percentages by quarter this season. In the first quarter, he's only shooting 10%. So sometimes it's a lack of shooting. He is shooting less in the first quarter than the fourth quarter, but he's also missing a lot more shots in the first quarter. So when he is looking for his shot 
early on the game. Maybe it's like a slight hesitation because he doesn't want to look for it. And that's why he's only shooting 10%. But it goes up throughout the game. Second quarter, 38%. Third quarter, 57%. And then the fourth quarter, he's shooting 60%, which I think we saw in this specific week in these three games that you and I went to. Uh, times where he turned it on exactly when he needed to turn it on. And that's what allowed the Suns to win, especially in games like the first two games, which was Houston and New Orleans. There were times where the Suns were not leading <laughs> in those games. And they took the lead. And to be able to hold on to the lead at the end of games, that's what the Suns struggled with for a long time. And now with Chris Paul last year, they didn't really struggle with it. And this year, even though he struggled shooting, his passing efficiency is still insane. And he's still able to turn it on at the end of the game. But the other thing that happened is he passed Steve Nash yeah. to become third all-time in assists. And it was kind of funny. They made a very small deal about it at the game that we were at. <laughs> because at they were down time. like 16 at the <laughs> time. Because they were down <laughs> significantly. They didn't call a timeout when it happened because it was right before the half. Usually, I think coaches call a timeout. Give the crowd a chance to like stand and applaud and cheer for them. Uh, but they didn't do it in that game because it was kind of awkward. They did it as they were leaving the court and going to the locker rooms. Um, part of me wonders if he's just trying to run his assist numbers up <laughs> now that he's that high. <laughs> I really don't think he is. I no. think I think he's just the consummate team player yeah. with the way he's playing this year. I, I mean, 12.1 assists to two and a half turnovers yeah, per game. that's wild. We're talking about Chris Paul here, and even he is doing stuff he's never yeah. done before. I, you know, he, he's leading the NBA in assists per 36. He, and assists. He, and assists, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. But his assists per 36, he's at over 13, almost 13 and a half. No yeah. other NBA players above 10. It's wild. It really <laughs> it's, is. It's wild. 38 years old. Somehow still capable of leading a team in the exact right way that they need to be led. And I think it's pretty clear. 36, 36. 36 Just years old. To Thank give you. him a Sorry. little bit of credit. I'm thinking of LeBron. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everyone brings up LeBron's age so often. Uh, but anyway, with Chris Paul, I think it's pretty clear, to you and I at least, that he's going to start shooting more towards the latter half of the season as well. And, and during this early part of the season, they're capable of experimenting uh, by giving guys like Mikhail Bridges, Cameron Johnson, Devin Booker, whoever it is, more shots early, DeAndre Ayton as well, to figure out exactly what they're going to be good at. That way, later on in the season, somebody like Chris Paul, who's just this data miner, <laughs> like he plays games with these guys and just stores all the data of what they're good at in his brain, he's able to employ that later in the season when the, the games are really getting tight and really matter. And I think, you know, now the scoring's down a lot, but, like, it's hard to get mad at the scoring being down a lot when he's averaging 12 assists a game. It's it's impossible for me to get mad. It's yeah. impossible for me. Well, I actually, that's a little bit of a lie because I do remember one of these games when we were down by about a dozen points, I was saying, why isn't he shooting? Um, but, yeah, with as, as long as the team is winning, keeping your teammates involved, you can't get mad at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to get mad at that. Uh, I don't really want to talk about this, but Cameron Johnson. <laughs> yeah, you, you have him in your outline. I feel like we should touch on it. He's been bad. Yeah. He hasn't been... He's been bad. He hasn't been terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, what's what's his three-point shooting at right now? You have it up in front uh, of you, I think. It was... Well, last time I looked at it, it was under... Uh, it was around 30%. It's Yeah, it's not where you want it to be, but I do feel like some people have been treating Cam like he just hasn't hit a shot all season. Now I'm looking at it, it's 31%. Mm -hmm. He's had a couple of decent games, but still, yeah, he's struggling to develop a rhythm with the rest of these guys and... And yeah, you know, he he had one of the biggest momentum building moments of last night's game. 
mm-hmm. with a couple of a couple of steals in a row. Behind the back dribbles. <laughs> little behind the back dribble and transition yeah. to beat two guys. It was a one on two, still got the bucket. Like we, we still see it with Cam Johnson. I'm not really worried about him. Is, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say, but it has been a rough start. Yeah, it's it's not it's not looked great. I think uh, you know, Devin Booker, I think, also was struggling to start, you know, coming off of COVID as well, and then really is picking up now. Obviously, 38 points in the last game. You did kind of see the gamut of Devin Booker-type games in this specific yeah. uh, visit because there were uh, there were games that he was just straight up not good in, uh, which was the New Orleans game. And then, of course, he, he did the Devin Booker thing of scoring like nine points in a row at the end of the game uh, to ensure the victory. And then there was the the Houston game where he was okay. Like, he did well. By the end of the game, he had a really good stat line, but it wasn't like this consistently great play. And then you saw the on-fire The on-fire Devin Booker, for a, sure. Against Atlanta, where he just came out and he smoked him. Like, he was getting to the rim. He was hitting long shots. He was hitting pull-up threes. He was shooting mid-range shots. He was getting fouled. I think he had a significant amount of free throws in that game. Nothing like uh, Trey Young, who <laughs> was playing for it at times. Uh, but... Yeah, what was your what, what do you think the experience was like for you watching Devin Booker live? <laughs> I think had Devin Booker not scored 38 points last night against Atlanta, maybe I would have given you a different answer about this. Right. But because he did, I you know, we we saw the full scope of possibilities yeah. with him. Yeah. Um in those first couple games it was a little bit more frustrating. It was mostly like, you know, Devin still gets to his spots. He's he knows exactly where he's able to play at this point. Um, but then there would be, you know, the more frustrating Devin Booker moments. Every time he, he takes a shot with a foot on the line, it's going in. By the way, I don't know if you saw, he even referenced that um, in an interview with, I believe it was uh, Kellen who tweeted it out or one of the reporters. He said he knows. I didn't that, see that. Yeah, he said it last night. If he takes a shot with his foot on the line, he knows it's going <laughs> He He did say that. So I think we should, uh, I think that should be like a 2K badge or something. We should petition for them to add that. Long two badge? Yeah, long two badge. <laughs> the longest two you can shoot. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow, as soon as his foot's behind the line, the percentage goes down a lot. Although, yeah. something that you can uh, touch on is he's shooting pretty well on pull-up three-pointers so far this season. Yeah, he's... Better uh, than he has, I think. You know, obviously, it's early on, so we'll see if it changes, but better than he has in any season so far. Right, and so that's what I was going to say. Then you go into last night. I mean, it was a a couple of decent games, but then you go into last night, 14 of 21 from the field, 5 of 9 from deep, including exactly what you're talking about, some of those being pull-up threes. Um, And everything was going for him in a way that was, yeah, when he plays like that, it really is special. It really is special to see. Yeah, it looks like uh, 34.8%. That's on, fine on pull up three so far. That's and, that's that's better than he's been in the past. I think for me, it's you know yeah, it's, that's good. It's been about yeah, efficiency. That's like what Damian Lillard shoots. Yeah, like thirty. Dame might be a little bit better, but thirty five percent is pretty good. It's it's mostly then a question of can you get your volume up? Can you just keep shooting them? Because if you know you're capable of doing that, thirty five percent, you should have all the confidence in the world to just pull up all the time. Right. And and I understand why he doesn't want to because he wants to be the triple threat. And we've talked a million times about how Devin Booker he's not this heliocentric player who gets all the touches in the world to begin with. So if he started taking more pull up threes, it would yeah. come at the expense of either shots at the rim or, or, or mid range shots like building out of the post. Right. But um, in particular, this Suns team, who's yeah. Not very capable of getting to the rim outside of him. Right. And, you know, other guys have been experimenting with it. Uh, Abdul Nader. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Alfred Payton. Uh, Cameron Johnson, I think, still kind of going to the rim a little too much. Uh, I think he's getting a little lost on his way to the rim at times. And I think maybe uh, sticking to shooting the even slightly contested three-pointer still would be better for him uh, at this point. What do you think? 
No, well, I'm thinking about how Abdul Nader and Alfred Payton were the first two guys you mentioned when you talked about attacking the they rim. They get to the rim a lot. Yeah, they do. They just do really bad things when they, <laughs> they get there. They do, they do. <laughs> campaign in there, too. You know, Campaign had a really bad game last night. But uh, How long do you think Monty Williams will continue to play Abdul Nader? Has he done anything good on the court recently? He has not done, from my eye test, he has not done anything playable this season. Yeah. But I feel a little bit harsh in saying that because I also go online and I see people just absolutely like crapping on the guy. And I think he was a playable rotation player last season. I do think he was. Mm-hmm. There's something there. There, There is something there. I mean, at the end of the day, all you need is a long switchable defender who hits his corner threes and, and attacks the rim decently well. And that's what Abdul Nader was last year. This year, he's had a really tough time. And, and I think the only thing that has caused hesitation for Monty to just cut him out of the rotation altogether is the fact that cam johnson also hasn't done anything mm-hmm. worth like being like okay cam have here you go have mm-hmm. 30 minutes a game instead of 24 or 22 or right. whatever he's playing yeah. so if cam gets it together then maybe you just cut nader out of the rotation but i don't think we're there yet no yeah i don't i i think monty likes to give guys an opportunity to improve and figure it out a little bit and maybe that cuts it down to seven minutes a game at some point. And then if he doesn't improve, then maybe still cut it down more, cut it down more, cut it down more. Of course, it depends on who's healthy and how well they're playing as well, just as you talked about with Cameron Johnson. But yeah, I think with Nader, it could be as simple as, look, Nader, I know you want to get to the rim. Not anymore. <laughs> we've, we've had enough of that. Either if you're not open from the three-point line, give it back to a creator, a shot creator, which at this time... There are a few on the team. Devin Booker, Chris Paul, if they're close to you, give it to them. Let them shoot a bad shot. It's still better than a, a live ball turnover at the rim, which is what a lot of Abdul Nader shots at the rim end up turning into. Or even at this point, someone I wanted to bring up with you, Landry Shamit, who was capable of creating for himself or for others in a pinch in, in, the, in the Suns rotation at times. On our last episode, we talked about Shamit. I mean, it was as simple as just not getting shots up. He wasn't even finding the shots, and that wasn't just on him. Maybe it was partially on him. I think there were times he was catching at the three-point line and dribbling a little too much. He was mad at himself in the post-game interviews because he had to be, but I think it was definitely on everyone else as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think he found ways to get his shot off, but I think more than that, there's some new things in the Suns' offense that allows him to get his shots up. And we saw... Uh, maybe three of his best games that he's had so far in the three games that we attended uh, on the Suns. What did you think? Oh, he put up, I'm just looking here, he put up a zero burger on New Orleans, so maybe not that one. Yeah. But but after that, 19 against Houston, 12 against Atlanta. Yeah. You're seeing him curl around the perimeter with guys like Chris Paul doing that behind-the-back pass. That was a play that we've seen two games in a row. And yeah. I posted on Twitter this morning. But we've also seen just general, like, more traditional off-screen plays for Landry Shamit. And that's what I've been asking for this entire time. He's not just a guy you stick him in the corner and you forget about him for 20 minutes because that's how he provides nothing. Yeah. But you, if you actively seek him out, there was no question to me this whole time that, that Landry's a great shooter and mm-hmm. you just need to actually have the initiative to get him open in the right spots. I, yeah. I really do feel like they're starting to figure that out. And so I have a lot more confidence in it this week. There's some new plays. Uh, there's some new actions that they run. But I also think it's as simple as he played more with Chris Paul, and Chris Paul is just more capable of finding uh, guys like that. There were I remember a very specific play in transition. Chris Paul is so good at engaging defenders in transition when the Suns are running, 
in order to get another guy open, right? He's dribbling at a guy and making him back up in order to get somebody open. And there were times in transition where he was just going right at Landry Shamit's guy yes. to make sure he backed up off Shamit and then he could find him in transition. He, he did do that sometimes. And then another thing that I've seen them run, both with Chris Paul, I actually saw them do it once with Jay Crowder too, who I think was, was bringing the ball up the floor as they do a little pistol action with Landry Shamit where he loads up on the strong side and you run really hard at his guy on mm-hmm. that strong side and then you pitch it off to him he curls around takes a shot right so that's another thing they're doing with him it's they want quick shots out of shaman and if you can't get the quick shot you set something up but then sometimes you're actually moving around and i think the other thing we're seeing is you can build out those plays in a way that doesn't sacrifice the initial setup of where you are you can still set up in your in your elbow set that we know the suns love so much you know you can still set up in 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 a spain or a double drag or whatever but monty is finding slowly he is finding clever ways to to build those out into secondary and tertiary options that involve Shamit rather than just forgetting about him. So yeah, I'm I'm buying a lot of of stock in Landry Shamit based on his play just in the past couple of games. Look, he's gonna have games where he takes seven or eight threes off the bench, mm-hmm. and he makes zero or one. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, he's still a streaky shooter. And this was a week where he saw him hit his shots, which is obviously important. Execution is as important as as anything else. Yeah. But before we weren't even seeing them try to engage him. Now we're actually seeing them engage him, and I think there's every reason for Suns fans to to be excited about the possibilities of what he can do. Yeah. We may be off of the Alfred Payton <laughs> roller coaster yeah. for now. Yeah. Uh, because Cameron Payne is back. He clearly wasn't quite back back, as we saw in the game against Atlanta, but he's playing now, and even just his presence on the floor, I think, makes a huge difference compared to Alfred Payton. To be honest, Alfred Payton it looks fine at times. Like he's not, he's not entire. It's not like Nader, where it's just about every minute he's on the floor, uh, you notice Nader on the floor. With Peyton, I think there are times he plays off the ball with Devin Booker that he's fine. There was a, a run. I think it was the yeah, it was the Houston game. There was a run that the Suns went on with Peyton on the floor where he was playing relatively good help defense. He was finding guys either in transition or like in the pick and roll with Javale McGee. Um, he does fine, uh, but I'm pretty excited to have Cameron Payne back yeah and like I said Cam had a brutal game last night I mean Chris Paul was like what plus 28 yeah in a four-point win or something (laughs) and that was when that happens it's because campaign was brutal yeah I believe in him though you know he'll he'll get it back he'll be fine feel so much more confident with him at the helm uh for 15 minutes or whatever than than Alfred no doubt yeah I mean yes Alfred Payton struggled Maybe it takes a little too much heat, including by me. Yeah, gonna, no, I, I, I blame think, myself too. I think Knicks fans have ruined Alfred Payton's life in some ways. <laughs> like he can never, he can never recover from that reputation, even if he is. Like again, I stress for the millionth time, you're paying him a minimum contract to be a third string point guard. Yeah, the expectations cannot be that high here. Yeah, they just can't. That's true. I mean, they're so the Suns are now five and three. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, five and three, over five hundred. They have some games. I think Sacramento's the next game. We'll see how they do. They're, they're going to be back on the road for a few games this week, and uh, and uh, let's see how they do. I think I'm, I'm. If you if you told me at the beginning of the season the Suns would be five and three after eight games, I wouldn't be mad. You know that's not bad. Uh, it's not exactly coming out smoking out of the gates like uh, Golden State or Utah has, uh, but it's not terrible uh, as well. I want to ask you though, Phoenix. <laughs> you had tacos. You went to some games. We went to First Friday. We went to some bars. 
we did a lot of things. What is your impression of the city as a whole? Was it like you expected? Is it different than you expected? You're putting me on the spot and it's like, am I supposed to say like, I'm not going to say negative things <laughs> to a podcast. <laughs> well, I hope you don't have to. No, I, 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 but I honestly don't have anything negative to say about my experience here. I think it's been great. Um, I think similar <laughs> to what I said at the beginning about the Suns arena renovation, kind of serves as a greater example like with the phoenix area in general mm-hmm. i think i grew up in and around new york city now i live in the the rural part of new york state so it's a much different experience now but when you grow up with a certain mindset you come here and and like there have been a lot of people who've told me in the past downtown phoenix it's not it's not popping there's not a lot going on in mm-hmm. downtown phoenix even you have told me in the past well, that's that, the way it used to be that in 10 yeah. 15 years ago that's what it was they said um, don't go to downtown after 5 p.m that's what people used to tell me yeah, that's changed. And and based on my experience here, I mean, I was at a hotel right in downtown, and it was it was a fantastic in in my opinion. Like, obviously, it's a smaller downtown area. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, mm-hmm. plenty of stuff to do, and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it looked totally developed to me, and yeah, I was impressed. I'm glad that you had a good time. I'm glad that you came down. I'm glad that the Suns are undefeated when you attend their games, and I'm still going to throw myself in there and say when we attend them together. When we attend games together. Yeah, yep. Go <laughs> because for it. that allows me to take partial credit for it as well. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry that we have to talk about Robert Sarver. Well, we, ha- we have to. And yeah. yeah, so I think this is where we can... Let's take a quick transition. break. Yep, let's do it. And then when we come back, we'll break down exactly what happened in the last week and uh, how that affects the team going forward. We'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
All right. This week, the morning of Thursday's game, actually, which was the Houston Rockets game, ESPN posted an article written by Baxter Holmes, an excellent journalist, a really good writer, um, alleging a lot of things uh, against uh, about Robert Sarver and the Phoenix Suns organization. Not, not even necessarily just Robert Sarver. It's sort of an uh, organization rife with dysfunction. Um, the story sort of led with a story by Earl Watson uh, alleging that Robert Sarver used the N-word in an interaction that they had, including Earl Watson pushing back against that and Robert Sarver again repeating it to him mm-hmm. uh, and then went on to say six more employees. I think this is actually this part of the story was something that people sort of didn't mention as much online. Earl Watson took the brunt of it, but it also alleged that six more employees at different moments heard Robert Sarver using that same word multiple times, whether it be repeating things he heard other people say in the past, or there was an anecdote about him saying, uh, implying that black players needed uh, black leaders. And he did that in a much worse way than I just did, as you can uh, imagine. Of course, I'm not going to do that. On the record were... Earl Watson and Corliss Williamson, along with a, a team staffer, a 25-year-old kid, basically, yep. who had his pants pulled down in front of other employees at an event by Robert Sarver, who, of course, laughed at him. The player awkwardly laughed, did not complain because he was afraid of retaliation, according to him. Um, an owner is cited uh, an, uh, anonymously as part of this story. There's also allegations of sexual harassment of female employees by Robert Sarver uh, and other people that work for the Suns organization. There was a story told about Robert Sarver handing around a picture of his wife in a bikini and talking about oral sex with her. Uh, There were female employees that said they felt like possessions of Robert Sarver. There were times that Robert Sarver, according to the story, would ask players if he, or I'm sorry, people who worked for him if he owned them. Uh, which is a uh, very weird, awkward wording and also puts people in very weird positions. Uh, one female employee in the story even said that she contemplated suicide. Uh, there's even more in the story. Something as small as... Uh, <laughs> Taylor Griffin was on the team. Remember that? There was something as small as Robert Sarver asking Taylor Griffin about his... Uh, routine uh his manscaping routine mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess you could say which was inappropriate there was even a story about him trying to coach the team drawing up pick and rolls in the paint uh which is just an example of him being an idiot when it comes to uh basketball as well of course this is all alleged by espn by the way if anybody's wondering why People, players, people who work for the team are afraid of saying that all of this definitely definitely happened. What they're afraid of is being sued. They're, they're using their words very carefully. They're saying, like Monty Williams saying, he's waiting for the uh, more facts to come out. They're afraid of being sued. They're afraid of saying something with extreme certainty and then a litigious millionaire coming after them and potentially suing them. So if you're wondering why we're choosing the words that we're using on this podcast as well, well... It was advice that we got, I guess we can say, (laughs) that we want to be careful with how we talk about this story. Overall, I'll quickly say, and I know I've been talking for a while here, Sam, sorry. That's fine. You got to give the details. Overall, I'll say this was tough. It was an incredibly long read. 
It had a lot of stories written by anonymous former employees, people who were on the record as well. And I tend to believe victims in scenarios like this. And I understand why in a lot of cases they were afraid to go to anyone else and tell this story. You know, the human resources was not relied on. Mm -hmm. um, And that was something that was echoed by multiple employees that worked for the team as a place that would keep the employees safe. It's really depressing and really sad. And if it's true, which of course I have to say, it's awful. And I hope that Robert Sarver, I hope that Robert, ultimately I hope that Robert Sarver comes to the decision that he does not want to own this team anymore on his own uh, because that would save a lot of, a lot uh, for the fans of the team and for the people that work for the team. It would save a lot of grief. I don't know that that will happen, but we'll get into that. Sam, we were we saw each other the day the story came out. We've obviously talked about it together. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, selfishly, the, the day that it came out, I, I did sort of think, oh, God, not now. Um, as you said, it's, it's a very long read um, with all of the allegations. And here we are a few days later. You know, everyone has... Here's the thing. Everyone has talked about it by now. Everyone knows the details. A few days later, what's gotten to me is the focus on certain aspects of the story, not that any one aspect of the story deserves more spotlight than any other aspect of the story, but naturally, I think this is just a human psychology thing, you have the bravery of people like Earl Watts and Corliss Williamson to put their names to it. And so there's been a lot of focus on on Earl Watson and Corliss Williamson and their specific stories, but I, th- I think it's easy to forget, and here we are a few days removed from this, and, and it's easy to forget how many interviews were conducted here. We're talking about over 70 and all of these kind of nameless, faceless, low-level, in some cases executives, but in some cases really low-level staffers within the uh, Suns yeah. organization yeah. who are alleging these this type of behavior. Yeah. And the, the powerlessness of those people. I thought one thing that we should really call attention to, Earl Watson put out a statement. Yes. And I thought the statement that he put out was um, fantastic and and possibly the best thing I've seen just coming out of this so far. Yeah. Well, I'll say this before we even get to that. The Suns responded, of course. And, yes, that's true. And throughout this story, there were responses uh, by Robert Sarver and the Phoenix Suns. Of course, there were cases where Robert Sarver would admit to the things that were done. Those ones often were things that were witnessed by multiple people. He would admit to those and sort of play them down as jokes. Uh, things that were seen by maybe one or two witnesses, he would deny um, you know, it is what it is. Of course, that's that's how, what it came down to. But the official statement by the team uh, was Robert Sarver essentially saying, I never used those words, the worst part of the words you could say, the ones that I would not be willing to say, of course. And then another separate res- response by Jason Rowley, who we'll see if his name comes up in any of the uh, initial investigations that's coming up, which we'll talk about, Yep. Um, that were specifically attacking Baxter Holmes and Earl Watson, basically trying to call their credibility into question, which, of course, if it comes down to it, that will be a massive part of their defense of these things that happen. Mm-hmm. Their their thing is, uh, their defense is now, don't believe these people, they're not credible people, which it is what it is. But um, to say that they were attempting to discredit Earl Watson would be putting it nicely. I think they were trying to impugn his character. Um, and that would be a strategy. And to that, Earl Watson said, who, Earl Watson, by the way, uh, current assistant coach of the Toronto Raptors, and likely this will be the last we hear of him or from him, I should say. Uh, and of course, in the investigation, which we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure he'll be part of. But he said, I'm not interested in engaging in an ongoing battle of fact. 
Instead, I want to applaud the courage of the numerous players, executives, and staffers for fighting toxic environments of racial insensitivity, sexual harassment, and microaggressions with their truth. Basketball and 17 years in the NBA has allowed me the financial privilege to speak my truth, but we can't forget about those who must remain silent for fear of losing their jobs. While our fortitude assists with progress, there is still more work to be done in the name of equality, and I believe that one of the strengths of our league is its ongoing commitment to justice. This has been a traumatic experience, one that has affected me profoundly, and I'm not willing to relive it every day, but I will not forget it. And I will address it more fulsomely at a point in the future when I feel ready. And this is an excellent statement by Earl Watson. And I think it gives some context to the fact that a lot of people are asking, why didn't these people come forward? Well, for one, if it's a toxic work environment that infects all parts of the work, you're probably not going to feel confident that you coming forward is going to change anything. Often these people are lower, lower paid people who believes that believe that their jobs are expendable and in many ways they are i've talked to people who've worked for the sons in the past one thing that they're willing to say to me they have a lot of turnover they have a lot of turnover people come and go from that job often and these people were trying to save their jobs and that's something that earl watson was willing to say earl watson somebody who knows a lot of people that worked for the organization and potentially still work for the organization and i thought that was a really good statement it gave us an idea of how he felt and I think it it gave more of a voice to the people who I think in a lot of ways some of the reaction to the story uh, has been people trying to discredit the people that were sort of nameless in this story yeah and and that's unfair I think to those people in in a lot of ways but yeah really great statement yeah I mean I I think it shows leadership um, in in a number of great ways because you're talking about Earl Watson here a guy who has every reason he, he feels these grievances against the Suns organization mm-hmm. and again was kind of the hook to the whole story I mean that that was the very first paragraph in the mm-hmm. story the Earl Watson bit and yet still has the wherewithal to separate himself as part of that statement and yeah. say hey I have this financial privilege not everyone does so mm-hmm. you know I, I I think that was that he had everyone else's back as part of that was uh, a really noble thing yeah difficult I think uh, a decision for him a difficult decision for the people that no longer worked for the team and even the people that did work for the team because there were people that still currently work for the team in this report. I know for a fact that there were people that no longer work for the team that were reaching out to people that work for the team, trying to encourage them to speak to ESPN and tell their story. Um, I also know that now that uh, that the NBA, I should say, has launched an investigation. This is the next part of this story. The NBA has now launched an investigation. They hired the law firm that they use that they used to investigate Donald Sterling as well. I know that there are people that work for the Suns or people that no longer work for the Suns that did that will be willing to speak to the NBA about their story, about their experiences working for Robert Sarver. Um, that's something that I'm aware of. Now, that's going to be huge because there's a difference, I think, between talking to ESPN who really has no control over the situation other than telling the story. They're a megaphone. And talking to the NBA who has control to actually make a change in this organization. And we can talk about whether or not that would happen. Sure. But the investigation is a step towards something potentially changing in this team 
going forward and there could be options, but what are your thoughts on the investigation? The investigation is going to be huge. Unfortunately, we don't have a timetable for it and it sets up a very long drawn out process where, so now we're at the point where everyone wants to know what happens next naturally. And a lot of where we can go from here becomes speculative. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. So we know that there is going to be an investigation beyond that. We can't say when we expect them to conclude at this point. Yes. Uh, Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski, the, you know, Woj, <laughs> we all I've, know Woj. I've heard of him once yeah. or twice. Yeah. Uh, he implied that it could take months. It could take a year. Uh, it seemed like they, I, I imagine that from the NBA's perspective, they don't want to drag this out. They want to finish it as quickly as possible. But I just talked about the amount of turnover with the Suns organization. That means there's a lot of people involved with this investigation. A lot of former employees that, that could come forward and speak to them. A lot of current employees that uh, could be asked to speak to them. And what the current employees want, according to Baxter Holmes' follow-up, because he speaks to current employees currently, is some sort of guarantee that their jobs will not be in jeopardy if they speak to this or this uh, investigator. And that's something that I imagine the NBA will have a lot of say in because that's considered retaliation. And it's technically, for the record, illegal if you retaliate against people that are uh, reporting something like that. So I imagine that that's going to happen, that those people will be given some sort of immunity, if you want to call it that, and be allowed to speak their truth and their story. Um, and that's something that uh, is important. Of course. Um, The other thing I want to say, the investigation only really comes into play. I guess not only, but if you have a situation where it allows the Board of Governors, the other 29 Board of Governors, to come to a decision regarding what should happen with the Suns and Robert Sarver. But there's another path, which I think you set up at the very beginning and we should talk about now. It is speculation. But what if Robert Sarver... The investigation, you know, will still play out as it does. What if Robert Sarver just doesn't want to deal with this anymore? Right. I mean, Robert Sarver could choose to uh, slink away. <laughs> right. He could it, sell. It, he could sell the team tomorrow. Yeah. Theoretically, of course, this is all just speculation. But you know that that doesn't necessarily affect any other possible repercussions that may come down from the NBA in the future. But yeah, that's a possibility. Well, I mean, to that to that point, there was a letter signed by owners of the Phoenix Suns uh, in support of Robert Sarver, including Larry Fitzgerald Correct. and some other minority owners. Uh, some people said it's every minority owner except for one. I have not been able to find a list of all of the Phoenix Suns owners. For the record, Robert Sarver only owns 35% of this team. <laughs> and listen, this is all opinion here. But the fact that a guy only owns 35% of the team and has this much control over, let's just say, the basketball decisions that have been made over his tenure, because I can speak to those, and they've been bad. He's made a lot of bad decisions basketball-wise for this team over the course of his ownership in the last 17 years, and only 35% of the team, and he's doing those things, it's kind of insane. The next person who owns the next largest stake is a man named Jom Najafi. I've talked a lot about Jom Najafi um, online in the last week because I find his story to be interesting and the timing of some of the things that he's doing to be interesting. And here's what I'll say about that. Of all of the known Phoenix Suns owners that I'm aware of, uh, he is one that did not sign that statement. He's also somebody who came out with his own statement about Robert Sarver and his willingness to cooperate with any investigation that would ensue as a result of the story. There's also a minority owner quoted in the story. I don't know that it's John Najafi, but you know, yep. speculation aside, who knows? It is kind of interesting that he's also worth 
Yes. $3 billion. <laughs> I think that's very interesting yes. and a very relevant detail. Who does that benefit, Sam? An owner that's worth $3 billion. Who do you think that would benefit? Uh, it benefits the Phoenix Suns organization. It also benefits the NBA, it also obviously. Benefits, it also potentially benefits the fans. Potentially, <laughs> potentially the fans. I think that also falls into the speculation. I think yeah. you could say that. But it's uh, you're talking about an owner with a vast amount of more cash flow yeah. if he were in majority control. Mm-hmm. A vast amount of more cash Theoretically. Flow if he were in majority control. Also, somebody who has worked with the NBA in the past. Uh, he worked with them in, uh, during the bubble when they started a charity that promotes um, racial justice, I guess is probably the best word. I think it's a word that the NBA uses. And here's the kicker. He was at the game last night. Courtside. Courtside with? Colin Kaepernick. This is according to Dan Bickley, posted a photo online, or he yeah. posted that he was there online. I think other people found him and posted the photo. We saw him. We from, saw him. <laughs> we saw him. We didn't talk to him, obviously. We, we but didn't. We, we saw him there. We can confirm with our own eyes that he was there sitting next to Colin Kaepernick, sideline yeah. at the Suns game. Now, does any of this mean anything? No. We can't report that. No. We don't know. It doesn't. It, truthfully, at this current moment, it means nothing. But the fact that he is the person who owns the second most amount of the team means that, like, if we're thinking about, like, voting, which I think there can be decisions made by voting, he has the second highest voting power. Uh, as far as the minority owners working to oust Robert Sarver, the story did touch on that. And it also touched on the fact that the minority owners looked into that. That means other owners of the team looked into it, according to ESPN, kicking Robert Sarver out of the what they call a managing partner position. The managing partner position essentially, we call him the owner of the team. He owns 35%. But what he owns is the largest voting stake of the team that allows him to control the decisions made and the overall day-to-day operations of the team. The uh, the minority owners looked into that. They were not able to do that. According to the story, his contract that allows him to be the managing partner is considered relatively ironclad. It's not something that they expect to be the outcome of this team. Can the NBA take away Robert Sarver's ability to be the managing partner? Potentially. I don't know this for certain. I, of course, have not spoken to the league. Uh, but could that be a potential outcome of this? Possibly. Does that mean that he still owns the the majority of the team as far as the largest share? Yeah, it could mean that. Um, but if they don't want him to be interacting with employees, if they don't want him to be interacting with players based on their initial investigation that could be a route that somebody takes at the end of this investigation right at the end of the day there are two big stories here two that i think are relevant to suns fans in terms of outcome and and two very different sects of suns fans who think in different ways there's the idea of can we just get robert sarver to sell the team so that we have a different owner to own the phoenix suns and make better basketball decisions right that doesn't spell justice right and is it a for, little selfish, for, too? For, of course. Maybe, yeah. Well, I, I don't want to say that, but maybe. Yeah. Doesn't spell justice for any of the allegedly aggrieved victims as part of a toxic culture, right? Yeah. So then there's the whole other part, which is what actual outcomes could we have, repercussions yeah. as part? Is, does it look like a fine from the NBA, or can we pursue other legal action here? Yeah. Could, could there be a suspension of Robert right. Sarver? Could there be a massive fine of Robert Sarver? Could there be a basketball <laughs> like an actual consequences basketball related. That's actually the for- on the table. <laughs> the forfeiture of draft picks or something. Uh, he would is something love that. that. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen a couple of people bring up. Personally, I think that has a 0% chance of happening. But It's very unlikely because I don't think it's basketball related, right? It wasn't right. like they broke a CBA rule. It's not like they cheated, right. like the team cheated. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's very unlikely as well. 
there are the consequences. I think the number one question that people are asking, this is the fault, by the way, of Jordan Schultz, is will he be forced to sell the team? At this point, I don't know. I don't know. Here's the truth about uh, Donald Sterling. Donald Sterling was not even forced to sell the team. The NBA was going to vote on whether or not they would force Donald Sterling to sell the team. Donald Sterling came out publicly and said he would sell the team before they did that. He probably did not want to be the only owner that was forced to sell the team. So whether or not this gets to that point, let's just say that I hope it does, and I hope there there is a resolution that comes before that. And to that point, here we are. The story came out three or four days ago. Yeah. The types of things that can influence that decision on the part of Sarver to wash his hands of it yeah. and force a sale of the team you're talking about public pressure and public mm-hmm. pressure can come from many different avenues yeah so there's there's also been the side of this that has thought everything everything that was covered in that espn article was potentially only the tip of the iceberg right and so now we've seen other people start to come out yes jalen rose being the yep. greatest example and in fact i'm shocked that we haven't mentioned it yet yeah because it was a huge we, a, a we need side. more it was we need more we need more obviously but it was a side angle that came out over the past 24 hours and i would be shocked if it was the last one yeah I mean, Jalen Rose implied that Robert Sarver used the N-word to describe a current Suns player, DeAndre Ayton, and as far as the reason that he did not want to uh, sign him to a long-term contract. And not only did he say that, but the context of he implied it on, or he said it on a primetime ESPN yes. halftime show Yes, in, in front of a huge audience with potentially massive ramifications if, you know, that yes. were to be... Yeah, it's not something you just throw out there. If people are wondering why this has not been picked up more, why people aren't talking about it, let me just explain a little bit to you. There's journalists out there that are furiously texting, tweeting, calling people, trying to verify whether or not this happened because they don't want to be the people that report on it before they verified, before they've checked with their sources. Can Jalen Rose be wrong? Yeah, it's possible he heard the wrong story. It's possible that somebody told him a story that he thought was already in the article and he reported it because he thought it was in there, mixing up stories that he's been told in the past and something that was already reported. Um, it's also possible that he knows something that he's not saying. Maybe there's a player, maybe there's a high-up person at the Suns organization that is going to report this to the investigation. We don't actually know. I think that's the more difficult part of that specific side of the story. Uh, I imagine we'll know more about what Jalen Rose said in the coming week um, and not so much longer than that because it is it is a major, major allegation um, for him to say that in the context that he used that word. Look, there's no good context to use that word, but to use it in the way that Jalen Rose is saying, um, I think there's a specific meaning behind the way that he used that. Yeah. And uh, and we could we can extrapolate based on how he feels as a person if that were true. So uh, obviously, so much more to come. <laughs> Do I want to be talking about this for a year? Hell no. Like I don't. Sam and I, first of all, Sam and I met on Reddit talking about Goran Dragic <laughs> and Gerald Green. <laughs> we're not here to talk about allegations of racism we're not here to talk about the politics of millionaires and billionaires are we equipped to do that no not not necessarily will we do our best to try and bring you our opinions on this and our readings of it and maybe things that you missed yeah i mean i guess we could say the best we can do is our best in this situation right yeah it's i mean we're here to cover everything that goes on with the organization and this is a huge story i mean you you can't you can't bury this so Now, I do want to give some credit 
to the locker room right now to Monty Williams to Devin Booker to Chris Paul who's dealt with something like this in the past for being focused enough now to win two games they won two games since this happened one game against the Rockets which are now one in ten or something like that and one game against the Hawks who are a relatively good team to be able to focus and play through this is going to be difficult and it could wear on them throughout the rest of the season credit to them for being being able to fight through it so far and um I do not envy them because here's the reality of this. Yes. The only person that should answer for this yes. are the people who have been accused. Robert yes. Sarver should be there. Um, other Phoenix Suns executives, I don't want to use any names because there were no names used in the story, should be answering for this. They have not been put on trial, if you will, in front of the media. But the players are. The players are out there. They're answering there. Answering questions about this. And I, you know... I would say, you know, to people out there listening, try to use some discretion in criticizing those players. They're put in an awkward position to answer for somebody that they may not even like, <laughs> truthfully. And it's difficult. It's I, difficult. I feel awful for them, honestly. Monty as well. Even James Jones, too. Yeah. You know, anyone who is not an accused party in this but is now forced to be a public face of the organization and go out there in front of the media every day, yeah. it's really tough. It's really tough on these guys. So, yeah. It's a tough position to be in. If you haven't listened already, go back and listen to our last episode. It's on Patreon. It was also released on our regular feed about sports media, sports reporting, and this current state of it and how difficult it is to kind of do anything <laughs> in sports media today. Um, we'll be back with our regular Patreon episode in the middle of the week. If you want to sign up, patreon.com slash timeline. Obviously, some games coming up and some more news about this Robert Sarver story that I'm sure we'll cover on our next week's episode. Sam, I'm very happy that you came to Phoenix. I'm very happy that we finally got to record in person, looking at each other in the face as we talk into microphones. This was, this was I, I don't know if I would use fun as the right word. It was a strange week, but it was a, yeah, it was a very fun, <laughs> fun week. Fun at times. Fun at times. Yeah. Fun at times. It was a full week. It's a very I, full I, week. I experienced a broad range of emotions this week, and you know what? If that ain't living, then what is? <laughs> exactly. I hope you come back at some point. Maybe if the Suns make the playoffs, you can do it at least once a year. Uh, we can make this a regular thing. I appreciate everyone for listening. Like I said, we'll be back very soon. We're not getting sued. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.